Would you remain standing as we turn now to the Bible? We're looking this morning at 2 Timothy chapter 4. If uh, you have a church Bible, these blue church Bibles, you'll find it on page 996. 996. You can't find a Bible. That's okay. I'm going to read it out. But if you can, it will help you to follow along as we believe in letting God speak through his word. So page 996, 2 Timothy chapter 4, and just to remind you a little bit of the context, uh, for those of you perhaps forgotten or some people who are dropping into our series, uh, this is a letter from the Apostle Paul, written probably the last letter he ever wrote. He knows he's going to die. He also knows that a lot of what he has established seems to be falling apart. There's great threat facing Christianity from persecution from uh, the Emperor Nero, the Roman Emperor at the time. What is more, Timothy, who is the sort of grand hope for the future of Christianity at the time, Timothy's a young man, in many ways not suited for this great task. Young, slightly um, uh, shy, probably. Um, And he has not only this external pressure, he also has, as Paul predicted, would happen when he gave his farewell to the Ephesian elders, Timothy's in Ephesus, the city there, the churches in that city. Uh, He also had, Timothy had, uh, false teachers, people opposing uh, the truth of Christianity, um, teaching things that are inaccurate, wrong, dangerous, probably in the church, um, uh, certainly within that city pressurizing him as well. And as we saw last week, Paul's been building up to say various things to Timothy. And last week, we looked at his word of encouragement to Timothy, and we we delved into that. But of course, it's good to be encouraged, but once you're encouraged, you need to know what to do. And uh, Paul now is uh, doing what I, uh, is telling to me what I've called in this sermon, to do this one thing. That's the title for the sermon, This One Thing. So 2 Timothy chapter 4, and I'm going to read from verse 1 just to verse 5. Then in some ways the section goes to verse 8. So 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. This one thing. Let's hear God's word. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. But as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. This is God's word. Amen. You may take a seat. It was one of the strangest church services I have ever been to. Our family was on vacation, and as is our habit on vacation, we just went to the local church. 
We discovered before we, as we were getting ready to leave, that the service that day was announced as an animal service. And I had no idea what that meant. And as we were describing this to our children, one of our children, who's now a good deal older, but at the time was quite young, one of our children had become attached to a particular plastic toy. And this plastic toy was a a dog, a a plastic toy dog. And it had a a string that you pulled it along and then it it rotated, it had wheels underneath and as as it rotated around it had eyes that that turned as, as you pulled it, sort of went forward like this, right? And as we we told our our family, our children, that we were going to go to an animal service, though we had no idea what that meant, this child began to insist that she bring her quote-unquote dog. Well, parents, you know what it's like. Better to get them to church, even they bring a plastic dog, right? So we said, okay, bring it with you. Well, the service... um, kept on going and then came the moment when the the minister at the front decided that it was time for everyone to bring forward their animals to be blessed. While our child, who again is a good deal older now, insisted that she bring forward her quote-unquote dog. (laughs) Yeah, right. Which she did. And I thought to myself, this is going to get interesting. What would I do in such a circumstance if I had been the minister? Well, the minister, uh, uh, I was going to say, bless their hearts, as they say in the South, I think. The minister decided that the right thing to do was to bless the plastic dog. (laughs) Now, I began to think of all the theology around this and just decided (laughs) this was not the moment to do so. We just roll with it. I don't know about you, but I, I go to churches these days sometimes, and, I, and I'm not just, I don't mean to be critical of other churches. A, you know, these people love Jesus. I'm grateful for everyone who does. I, but I, I, I read all the advice that we've been given on the internet about how to be spiritual, how to get to know God, and then what you need to do to church. And I just get confused. Like, what is the truth anymore? Don't you feel like that? How do we. And then, then, I don't know about you, but I'm pressurized. I've got any number of different things on my to-do list. You have the same. You're overwhelmed with complexity. The world just seems a very complicated place these days. And there are all these difficulties and hassles and struggles and challenges and things that you... What, what are we meant to do about it? And, what, what, and you know, there's this great list of options of what you could have. This kind of church service... You could have that kind of church service. You know, it's like every flavor of ice cream. And Paul here in the Bible is telling us, and first of all, of course, Timothy in context, but in God's sovereignty and his providence, he's provided it for us. He's telling us how the word is the surprisingly simple one thing that makes all spiritual things work. 
Like, it makes, makes your relationships work, helps you to forgive people, makes church leadership work, makes churches work, makes, makes, helps you forgive your wife, forgive your husband, helps you figure out how to train your children, helps you figure out what you're meant to do with your life, makes, helps you figure out who you are internally with all your emotional, how the word is the surprisingly simple one thing that makes all spiritual things work in three ways. Here they are. First of all, Paul is saying, hurry up. Hurry up. And how I get this, what Paul's saying, is really, it's throughout the passage, this sense of urgency around the word that we need. And therefore, a priority, an urgency, hurry up. How I get this, in a number of different ways. So, first of all, you notice that the word appearing is in verse 1. Appearing, but the same word is again in verse 8. This is a structure that indicates a a theme, beginning and end, appearing. And the word appearing has a sense of a manifestation or a... um, a vision even, that is a view, a a sight of Jesus. So what Paul is saying is that Jesus is coming back, could be any moment, and Timothy, I want you to have that vision, that sight in view of his appearing. Of course, that gives urgency. But then also, uh, Paul has this word charge. I charge you. Now, we don't, and it's not how we talk in English these days, isn't it? You've got to say, I'm going to charge you to do this. It's not, you know, you'd think they were charging you your credit card or something, right? We don't use the word like that usually. But, but the, 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 the Greek behind it, charge, has a sense almost of a legal commission. It's like this is formally yours, Timothy. I charge you. Here it is in writing. I charge you. Of course, that gives a sense of weight and indeed urgency and importance to it. I charge you. But again, this hurry up, this urgency also comes throughout the passage. Paul has, he uses a number of different commands it's like, and they're almost staccato, one after the other. Do this, don't do that, do this, do that. And if, if, you, if you were to read it out, and I read it out slowly because I know, you know many of you, you know, I, I, I perhaps haven't read it yet this morning. So I, usually when I read out the passage, I read it slowly. But if, if you were really to read it, there'd be a sense of, you know, do this, do this, do this, do this. It's a staccato imperative command. In view of the appearing, I charge you, there's, a, there's an urgency. Our family uh, 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 sometimes go back to England for vacation. Some of you know I was over in London, not really on vacation, but uh, really, but preaching. And I went there with one family member, which is great. And uh, before I got to the church where I was going to be preaching and then to the conference, we, um, uh, we had an opportunity to go and visit um, 
a tourist attraction in London. And this particular tourist attraction is called the Churchill War Rooms. It's really amazing. You go down underneath London and there are all these tunnels, these places where the command at the time, the British command during World War II, was, that was its base of operations. They were underground, these tunnels. It wasn't very sophisticated, very bare bones kind of thing. And that was where they were based to protect them from the bombs that were falling on London. And it was the Churchill War Rooms. And they've been, only been open to the public for a few years now and I hadn't been and went down to see it and it's really amazing just to, you, it's been preserved exactly as it was the day that they left they shut the doors and it's just been preserved exactly how it was and it's there's some fascinating things you get the sense of Churchill's sense of humor so there's there's a room there in the Churchill war rooms which is the place where Churchill had his his secret um telephone line that was the direct telephone line to President Roosevelt during, during the, the World War II. They would talk on the phone and there was a special room with a special phone line that was secure for them to talk to each other. And of course you got that. You, know, you want to make sure it really is secret. And you don't want anyone listening in to what you're saying. How are you going to do that? Well one way to do that would be to sort of you know, say this is a secret room. Don't go here. But of course that's a bit like saying don't walk on the grass. That means people want to walk on the grass, right? You know, it's secret. Oh, that sounds interesting. So, so what Churchill did, and in English, the two letters WC stand for, in British English, stand for water closet or toilet or restroom. And so what Churchill did on this secret special place where there was the phone line to the, to the President of the United States with all their, their secret communication, he put on the door Prime Minister's WC. Because, of course, no one's going to want to listen at that door. But the other thing I discovered when I was down there is Churchill had a way of getting things to hurry up. And what he did is he had a sticker with three words written on it. Action this day. It's a red sticker. And out went the paper to some bureaucracy. Action this day. Action this day. Got to hurry up. You say, I'm so busy. I've got so many different things going on. I can't possibly prioritize something else. Let me help you with that. Imagine if you were a quadrant. Okay, so four squares. And um, in one quadrant, one of these, one part of this quadrant, one square... There are things that are not important and not urgent. That's where a lot of our time goes, isn't it? You have um, uh, Netflix binges. Uh, You have scrolling pint interest. Well, that looks like an interesting recipe. And before you know it, you're there 10 minutes, right? Something else, something else. Facebook, whatever. Not important, not urgent. And a lot of time goes there. And then in another square, you've got things that are urgent, but not important. For instance, often email. You know, or, or a message app. You know the way they design it? They've got a little red circle usually with a number in it. And it just makes you think, I've got to do something about that. So I've got three messages. Ah. And then you go and you find they're not, 
it's urgent, but it's not that important. But a lot of our time goes to that kind of stuff. We're just kind of churning around. And then in this quadrant, there's another quarter where I think, well, let me explain. This, this, this other square would be important, but not urgent. Now, I think a lot of us put the word evangelism, discipleship, Bible teaching, church, in that square. Important, but not urgent. I mean, you know, I'll still be here next week. Lots of other things are going on, you know. It's important, yeah, of course it's important, but it's not urgent. And what Paul was doing for Timothy is he's saying, this, the word, no, it's not in that square, important, but not urgent. It's in this square, important and urgent. Action this day. Because Jesus is coming back. And let me ask you this question. If you knew for sure that Jesus was returning tonight. And Jesus says he'll, he'll, he'll be like a thief in the night. You won't be expecting it. If you knew for sure that Jesus was returning tonight, how would your schedule be different the rest of this day? Because he might return tonight. In view of his appearing, it's urgent. Hurry up. But then Paul also says, speak up. So hurry up, speak up. And um, this is verse 2. And here's the, the central part of the charge. This is, you know, how the word is the surprisingly simple one thing that makes all spiritual things work. And here is the central point of the charge, which is to preach the word. But when we hear, hear the phrase preach the word, I think we have often the wrong set of ideas in our minds, particularly around preaching. When we hear the word preach, in contemporary culture, in, in, in the way we think, we tend to, you know, that was a bit preachy. What does that mean? It means sort of lecturing about things that I really am not interested in, but obviously he is, and he's kind of judging me. Preachy. Forcing your moral views on someone else. That, that's what we think of as preachy. But when Paul says preach here, he's using a word in Greek that meant herald. And a herald in ancient times was someone who went to a market square, the center of the city or the town, and had an important piece of news that was also urgent, stood out and in a big voice, hear ye, hear ye, and proclaimed it in the market square. In other words, preaching is not being preachy. Preaching 
is a communication to the community of something that is urgent and important. And that's why preachers like me want to get the word out. It's the preaching is not like a private exercise preaching to the choir. Preaching is about declaring God's truth to the world. And that's why, of course, it's not just preachers who need to preach. It's all of us because in, in the business place, in the school, in the market square. And what is this word that we're meant to preach? The word, in context, Paul has described to Timothy how the Old Testament scriptures he'd been trained since he was young and how he had received instruction from Paul himself, that is the apostolic instruction, which we would call the New Testament. And how all that, of course, is summarized in this word. In other words, in other words, Paul describes it in different ways in this letter. He calls it the deposit, he calls it the teaching, he calls it the faith, he calls it the truth, and here it is the word. That is how the scriptures point to the message of Jesus Christ and how he died for us on the cross that if you believe in him, you might have new life. And it's that message that is the key thing that we have to declare everywhere. And it is that word, Timothy, that you must preach. You must preach the gospel from the Bible. You've got to preach the word in season and out of season. In other words, there'll be times when it feels like Evangelism, telling people about Jesus is in season. People come to know Jesus. It's like there's so much fruit. And there'll be other times when it doesn't feel like that at all. It feels hard. It feels like it's winter, not summer. Either way, Timothy, you've got to keep on going. Because you know from the Old Testament, Psalm 1, that the man who's rooted in God's word will bear fruit in season. There will be that season, that summer to come. Keep on going through the winter to the summer because there will be a season because God's word will return to him and do what it is that he has accomplished for it to do. Preach the word in season and out of season because in season is going to come around again. Be ready, be urgent in season and out of season. And then he says, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. And I think what's going on here, just very briefly, is Paul's describing to Timothy the right way to communicate. That is, that is, he's saying reprove, which in the original has the sense of like a cross-examination in a court. That is, it's an argument. There's logic to it. Reprove. He's making a case. And the rebuke has a moral force to it. You've got to, you've got to have moral weight behind what you're saying. This is wrong. This is right. Moral force, rebuke, and then exhort is inspiring and passion and energy and inspiration. What we sometimes, um, theoreticians or rhetoric call logos, ethos, and pathos. That is logic, morality, character, and passion. You've got to have all that, Timothy. And then it has to be with complete patience and teaching or all patience and teaching because if you're a preacher evangelist you're telling someone about Jesus it will sometimes be out of season and sometimes they won't understand and you've just got to be patient you know very few of us understand things the first time I know I don't I need to hear it from a different angle a different time and then finally go oh now I get it I just got to figure out a different way to say it and have patience and this preaching which is heralding is also with teaching. That is, there is content. So real preaching of the Bible is also training, teaching. There's an education element to it. It's not just shouting loudly. There's a teaching to it, preaching with complete 
patience, preaching with complete patience and, and teaching. In other words, you've got to speak up. One time I was uh, approached by another pastor who wanted to get together with me for uh, coffee or lunch. I think it was lunch. And there we were in a restaurant. And he was in difficulty. His church was not doing very well. And uh, there were financial difficulties. The attendance was way down. And he was describing to me all the different things that he tried. He tried this. He tried that. He tried the other. And I, as I was listening to him, I was really impressed by his energy, by the creativity that he had. Oh, oh, all the different things that he had tried. It's like, wow, I wish I, wish I had that creativity. That's amazing. And so he'd gone on like this, and then he looked at me and said, so Josh, what are you doing? And I took a bite of food and thought for a moment, and then I looked at him and said, we preach the Bible. And I kid you not, this is what he said. Well, we've tried everything else. I guess we could try that. And I thought, go for it. Like Paul said, whether with good motivations or poor, the main thing is that the gospel is preached and I praise God for it. You go for it. I wasn't sure he believed the gospel, but he was going to preach it. Good. Maybe you've tried everything else. You've tried other religions. And they just leave you in bondage and guilt. Maybe you've tried other philosophies and theories and self-help books. And you've tried everything. How about trying the word? Say, so how do I do that? Here's three little ways that I think will help. Remember that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. That doesn't mean that you have to develop a relationship with everyone, but it does mean that if you do have a relationship with someone, they need to know that you care. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Number two, ask someone to tell you a story of how Jesus met them. This is not a theory. This is a personal encounter. When did Jesus meet you? Tell me a story about that. And if they don't have a story then you can tell them how to meet Jesus. Come to him by faith. Simply commit your life to him and your encounter him. And then number three, don't tell them your theories. Don't tell them your opinions. Tell them what the Bible teaches. Speak up. And then thirdly, don't give up. And this is verses three to five in our passage. Don't give up. And here Paul is talking about the false teaching that was going on in Ephesus, but this time he does it from a different angle. This time he's doing it from the angle of the people rather than the preachers, the false preachers. And the issue 
Paul says fundamentally is that the people want to hear this kind of teaching. That's why it's happening. And that is, he says, they have itching ears, or that phrase itching ears means a curiosity for spicy new pieces of information. They just want something novel. That's why it's happening. And he emphasizes the ears or what they want to hear actually in the original twice, so it's verse three. But again, in Greek, in verse four, he talks about their ears, what they want. They don't want to hear the truth. They want to hear something else. And so there's an issue with the ears. In other words, if you, if you ever ask yourself, why is there a particular kind of false teaching in a city or a country? I guarantee you, the answer is, it's what people want. It's an issue of the market. It's about the ears. You know, what is the, the biggest false teaching in America today? The prosperity gospel. If you believe in Jesus, you can get rich. And to blessing means to be rich and famous. Why is that prosperity gospel prospering? It's because that's what we want to hear. It's filling a market need. What is more, uh, says uh, Timothy, there's actually a particular pattern to these false teachings. So it says they turn away from the truth and they wander away to myths. And if you trace, trace it through church history, this is the constant pattern. It's a turning away from truth and then afterwards more and more myth. in other wo- myths. In other words, when someone starts believing in God, they don't believe in nothing. They believe in everything. Everything. But, Timothy, don't give up. Why? He says, um, but as for you, verse 5, which is the third time he said this and third and last time in this letter, verse 10 of chapter 3, verse 14 of chapter 3, now verse 5 of chapter 4, the same phrase in Greek, but as for you or but you, no, you're not to give up. Why are you not to give up? Paul gives three commands and then an instruction to do the work of an evangelist that I think is designed to sort of lift Timothy with new energy and inspiration in the midst of the rigor of just not giving up. So he tells him, these three commands, be sober-minded. In other words, be calm, be cool. He tells him to endure suffering. In other words, sometimes you just got to grit it out. It won't feel pleasant always. You know, that's one of the great lies, isn't it, that's out there today. If you just do the right thing with God, it always feel good. No, it won't. Sometimes you've got to endure suffering. You've got to grit it out. And then his final command is fulfill your ministry. In other words, don't give up, complete it. But then in the middle of it, there's this instruction that is like a sort of helium balloon that is kind of lift, meant to lift Timothy, which is do the work of an evangelist. In other words, if you're frustrated that people are going off after false teachers, what do you need to do? What you need to do so you need to sit down over a cup of coffee with a non-christian and tell them about Jesus you know why because then someone if God wills it will become a new Christian they'll have new life that'll be so thrilling and even if they reject it you'll come away going I'm so glad I know you Jesus do the work of evangelists Timothy, don't spend all your life complaining about what's happening in the culture and the world. Get on your knees, pray for a non-Christian, get a coffee for a non-Christian, tell them about Jesus. It will lift you. Don't give up. 
Michael Green was one of the great evangelists of the last 20 or 30 years he, he, he or so. He's, he died fairly recently, perhaps the last couple of years. Um, he died at the age of 90. And when he was 90, Michael Green was still doing, he was a university evangelist, evangelist among college students, 18 to 21-year-olds or 22-year-olds. Michael Green was still doing university evangelism. At the age of 90, he was doing a major evangelistic mission on a university college campus. There he was, doing evangelism, doing the work of an evangelist. At the age of 90, he, he damaged his leg somehow or other. I don't quite know how, but he damaged his leg. It was serious enough that he had to go to hospital, and things got worse, and his wife came to see him, and she talked, and then he began to fade out of consciousness. And she came away from seeing him and saw another friend of theirs as she was leaving to get a cup of coffee or take a break or something like that. She said to her friend, you know, I think I've spoken to Michael for the last time. And that evening when the family were gathering, they got a message from the hospital, a message that was delivered from the hospital that that came from Michael. This was the message. Bring more evangelistic books. They're going like hotcakes. They went to visit him and they found on his bedside table there in the hospital a stack of evangelistic books and a note on, tack, on top of them in his own handwriting saying, if I'm asleep, please take one. And two days later, he died. That's how not to give up. You do the work of evangelist. Don't give up. How the word is the surprisingly simple one thing that makes all spiritual things work. There's an urgency, hurry up. There's an advocacy, speak up. There's a persistency, don't give up. Let me leave you with this. September the 15th, 1939, a special edition of the Bible was published. And in the front of that Bible was written this notice. To all who are serving in my armed forces, whether by land or sea or air, and indeed to all my people who are engaged in defense of our realm, I commend to you this book. For hundreds of years, it has been a source of strength and wholesomeness to our nation. And in these momentous days, it behooves us to turn again to this divine source of comfort and inspiration. Let us do so again today. Our Lord God, we do pray that you would help us to do that. We pray, Lord, that we would turn aside from myths and to your word.
We pray, Lord, that we would trust you and believe you and therefore speak about you. We pray this, Lord, for your great glory. And we ask, Lord, that as we do this, you would indeed give us comfort and inspiration from your inspired word. That we individually as a church and our families will be people of this one thing. For we pray it for Jesus' glory and in his name.